Every now and again, I get asked down to Balmedy Primary to do some classwork. And I always really enjoy those classes. And one of my favorite lessons is when the P6s are looking at space and time and thinking about creation and the Big Bang, the God story and the science story. And part of what I love telling them is that you don't have to choose between those stories. It's often put about in the modern world, well, it's science or it's faith. And I love telling them that's not true. It's quite possible to believe in God and the findings of science at one and the same time. And after many years of study in chemistry, some might say too many years, I like to think that I am living proof of that. And part of what I try to help the children understand in that lesson is that the Bible didn't come down from heaven on a platter one day. Its 66 books are the product of about 40 different authors over something like 1,500 years. And in that sense, the Bible's more like a library than a book. It's lots of books. And the thing is, as you well know, you get different kind of books in a library. You get biography, history, letters, legends, records, science books, story books, fiction, non-fiction. And I would argue that it's just the same with the Bible. The books in the Bible are not all of the same kind. And the first thing you need to have in mind when you read any of them is what kind of literature is this that I'm reading? When my kids were younger, they wouldn't have thanked me if I'd read them a science book as a bedtime story. Or if I was trying to fix my car, my point of reference wouldn't be the story of Hansel and Gretel. It would be a car manual. The kind of literature that you're reading is really important. It's important to know. And for me, though by no means all Christians, the opening chapters of Genesis are really a poem. They're a poem telling the story of creation as the Hebrew people of long ago understood it. And although as a scientist, I don't think those stories are literally true, I do think they teach you some important truths, not least the one I want us to be thinking about this morning. God sees lonely Adam with no companion like him, and God says, it is not good for the man to be alone. And what's true of Adam is, of course, true of all of us. It's not good for people to be alone. We don't flourish in life without one another. From the cradle to the grave, the grave, we need other people around us to make life worth living. It's in community that you and I discover who we are and where we belong in the world. And it's not overstating the mark to suggest that our lives are in our relationships. And that shouldn't surprise us, at least not in the church. Because one of the other beautiful truths that Genesis brings us is that humanity is created in the image of God. And the God that we meet in the Bible has this strange character of being somehow three and yet one at the same time. One God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. It's called the doctrine of the Trinity, and we struggle for language to describe it. The closest 
that I can get, and all metaphors fail at the, at the end of things, but the closest I can get is to say, well, I'm one person, but in another way, I'm kind of three people. I'm a, I'm a husband, and I'm a father, and I'm a son, all at the same time, one and yet three. Or if you think about a line drawn on a page that's one-dimensional, that line can't imagine a three-dimensional cube. It can't get its head around it. It's beyond its experience. So we, have, we always struggle for language when we try to speak about the Trinity. But if God is Trinity, this interplay of persons, then that means that God is relational in God's very being. And if we're made in God's image, it shouldn't surprise us that we are relational creatures too. Now, I want you to humor me for a moment, and I want you to think about some of the best and most memorable times that you've ever had in your life. Holidays, special events, celebrations. Take a wee minute to picture something in your mind's eye. Now, I'm not a betting man, but if I were, I think it would be a fairly safe bet that part of what made those times special were the people who were there with you, sharing them with you. It might still have been good without them, but it was better with them. We were made to relate to other people. It's how we're wired. And even the introverts among us aren't exempt from that. They might not need as many folk around them, but they need at least a few, and they need to know them deeply. The philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre once said that hell is other people. My guess is that Jean-Paul never spent any time in solitary confinement. After a few weeks or months of that, you are desperate for human companionship. And the poet John Donne once said that no man, presumably no woman either, is an island. And that's just a way of telling us what Genesis is telling us this morning. It's not good for us to be alone. So here's my question for today. Is technology helping us or hindering us when it comes to loneliness? I want to try and play fair with that question this morning because it would be easy to jump onto the bandwagon and start slating social media, and in fairness, you will be getting a bit of that later. But the thing is, all the black screens in our homes or in our hands are just tools, and tools in themselves are neither bad nor good. It's how we use them that counts. And we do live in an amazing time in relation to all these technological tools that we have. Ross, our son, who many of you might remember from Scouts, Ross was home from Glasgow over Christmas, and rather than lugging his big computer home from Glasgow, he rigged it up so that he could switch it on remotely from Aberdeen using voice activation, and then he got his laptop up here to mirror the screen down in Glasgow, which allowed him to access all the files and work that he needed to use while he was up here. And the broadband in both places was good enough to allow him to play video games on his Glasgow computer while sitting in our front lounge in Aberdeen, playing them on his laptop screen. Crazy stuff. Facebook, 
and WhatsApp, which I realize are the senior citizens of the social media world, are allowing me to keep in contact with friends from university in Birmingham that I haven't seen for 20 or 30 years, but we're still in contact. The banter goes back and forth, and it's a great way of keeping in touch with them. I know mums and dads who are working far away from their families and are able to read their kids' bedtime stories every night through Skype or through FaceTime. I know grandparents and great-grandparents who aren't fit to travel anymore, but check in every other day with their family and friends here on the other side of the world, in Australia or Canada. Technology is amazing. The only problem for those of a, of a certain age is keeping up with it. I remember this wee clip from Dara O'Brien as I was preparing for today, and given the language, I did have to edit it a bit, but you'll get the gist. Dara is talking to a young guy in the audience about doing his homework and about technology. Belts along, like whatever, and it is bewildering for people. James, my young friend over here, you're across this stuff because you're 16, you're 17. You know, you're all about MP3s, and all. You're, you're across this stuff, aren't you? I don't have a computer. You don't have a computer. <laughs> Now we're looking at the essays in a completely different light. James, like some sort of monk, just slowly, in longhand, painting out his German verbs on the table. You don't even have a computer. And you do you have an iPod or MP3? Oh, James. James, get with the program, it's fantastic. Get with it now before it runs away too far from you, right? Because basically technology will thump and go. And when it goes, it never comes back. You basically run alongside technology for a part of your life and you're racing along and technology is striding. And you go, Jesus, technology, what are you today? Technology's going on a phone. You can carry all over the world. You go, Jesus, that's brilliant. Now what are you? I'm a phone with a camera built into it. Jesus, that's great technology. Now what are you? I'm a phone with a camera and a breville sandwich maker and a clear all Anybody want that? Breville sandwich maker and a foot spa. Um, interestingly, isn't it? That, that was from 2006, and that's already dated. He's talking about a phone that you can take all around the world or a phone with a camera as if it was a modern thing. And we're going, everybody's got that now. 2006. And here's a wee word to the younger people today. If you're not struggling to keep up with the technology just yet, don't get smug because your time will come. It's not just keeping up with it that's the challenge. It's using the technology well. I said earlier on that technology is just a tool, but the thing is, hammers and saws didn't seem to take over people's lives the way the black screens are taking over ours. And I submit this next photograph as evidence. This is the boy child, Ross, home at Christmas, doing what has become known in our house as triple screening. Messaging on iPad, working on his, li his laptop, and watching telly at the same time. If he pulled his phone out, we'd have had to phone the Guinness Book of Records. The first known incidence of quadruple screening. A recent survey showed that the average American spends 11 hours a day using screens and engaging with media of different kinds. And to the best of my knowledge, that doesn't include time at work. Four of those hours are on TV, another three on smartphones or tablets, another hour on gaming. That's getting pretty close to every waking hour. 
which begs the question, is this reliance on media and tech helping us with our loneliness or making it worse? Another question for you. Can we have the next slide, Ernie? Which do you think is the loneliest generation? I'm going to give you 20 seconds to speak to the people around you about that question. Which do you think is the loneliest generation? Off you go. Okay, folks, what did you think? Any ideas? The elderly, some are saying? Teenagers? A BBC survey of over 55,000 people recorded that 40% of 16 to 24-year-olds reported feeling lonely often or very often, more than any other age group, including the elderly. Many of those young people reported difficulty connecting with other people in real life. Because of that, they often prefer to communicate by text or email or messaging rather than picking up the phone to speak with someone that gives them more control and they don't have to interact directly with people, especially people they don't know. But we all know that when it comes to the electronic communication, social media can quickly become toxic. Hunkered up in the safety of their bedrooms, people say things to other people that they would never say in real life. And we've seen the tragic effects of that only too clearly over the last week with the loss of Caroline Flack. A good few years ago, I wrote what I called 10 Commandments for Social Media, and they're just as relevant today as they were then. And number four was this, if you wouldn't say it to my face, but you're prepared to post it on Facebook or other social media, that makes you either a coward or a gossip. Neither is an attractive option. There's little doubt, I think, that for good or for ill, technology is definitely changing the way that we relate to one another. We're all very familiar with this kind of scene. The teens out together, heads in their phones, but let's not kid ourselves, it's just the kids who are at it. Social media feeds FOMO, fear of missing out, but the irony is that with our heads stuck in our phones, we miss out on the very people who are right there with us. The coffee apothecary in Pitt Medden ran a promotion a few months back where they would give you 10% off your bill if you agreed to let them lock your phones away in a metal box for the duration of your visit. It was their way of encouraging people to focus on the people that they were there with rather than people who were somewhere else on the end of a phone. Now, don't get me wrong about this. The evidence suggests that social media is really good for keeping up with friends and family, but the problems come when it starts replacing time with friends and family. We don't need 
hundreds of virtual friends. We need a handful of close friends. Companions, a word which literally means someone you eat bread with. And you can't do that over the net. The irony is that this is the most connected era in human history, and yet in many ways we're becoming more disconnected from the people around us than ever before. And that should give us pause for thought, because as we've been saying this morning, it's not good for us to be alone. I think we need to give ourselves a pat on the back this morning. In fact, let's just do that. Let's just give ourselves a pat on the back, okay? Let's give ourselves a pat on the back. In our youth organizations and in the church, because in using technology and the ways that we do, we're trying to keep pace with society, but we also place a strong emphasis on meeting face-to-face. And in doing that, we're doing the right thing, even if it's becoming more countercultural. In preparing for today, I looked up some surveys on what makes for happiness. I did some work on that many years ago, and the findings in the most recent surveys are saying exactly the same things. What makes for a happy life? Gratitude. Learning to forgive yourselves and others. Valuing yourself. Practicing self-care. Altruism, which just means looking out for other people. Meditation or prayer. A sense of purpose. Exercise. Physical activity and relationships. And the key thing there is quality, not quantity. And it struck me that what you do in the youth organizations ticks a lot of those boxes. Yeah, you do screens, we all do, but you do a whole lot more. You build dens. You set fire to things in a controlled environment. You take a few calculated risks. You brave the elements. You travel you explore, you set goals, you make stuff, you build character, you build relationships, you learn to cooperate and get on with people, sometimes folk you wouldn't naturally be friends with. So boys and girls, I want to say well done for being a part of this. And I especially want to thank all the grown-ups who volunteer as leaders within the movement because it comes at a cost. And we recognize that this morning, and we thank you for what you're doing on behalf of our young people and our community. Let me make one last wee observation now as I finish. Over the last couple of weeks, uh, we've set ourselves a wee project in the church. We've been asking some of our, we've been asking some of our friends and our family uh, why it is that they, they don't come to church anymore or maybe have never come. And the answers are, are fascinating. Uh, There was one particular one that made me smile a little. Uh, I wouldn't benefit from sitting there every week listening to a sermon that has no relevance to my everyday life. Try not to take that too personally. Look at that list of what makes for happiness again. Gratitude. Learning to forgive yourself and others. Valuing yourself, self-care, altruism. Meditation or prayer, purpose, exercise and physical activity, relationships. With the possible exception of exercise, 
And given that there's a path down to Balmedi now, there's no excuse for not walking or cycling to church. This is the stuff that we're about. And as we try to live in harmony with God, we find that these are the very things that He's leading us into. Today, we've been thinking about loneliness and community, social media and technology. Nothing relevant there in today's world, is there? And we've been thinking about these things because this irrelevant old book that's got nothing to say to modern people has reminded us of something that's at the very heart of what it means to be human. That it is not good for us to be alone. We're made in God's image. And that means that we are hardwired for community. Amen.